and gentlemen, welcome back to A Thompson and Other Disappointments, your twice, sometimes thrice weekly delve into all things politics, news, despair, dystopia, awfulness and shit. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, how you doing, guys? What's going on? You will be receiving this uh, episode of the podcast on Friday in lieu of me doing my usual live stream. Um, because I'm out doing the Riot Society show in Tower Hill with Danny Price, Marina Perkis, Dane Baptiste, James Benison. Oh my God, it's going to be a laugh. And if you're stuck at home listening to this, then I feel I feel bad for you, man. I do. But um, but just, you know, take solace in the fact, take strength in the fact that I am out having a good old time. Probably broadly amusing a room full of people. Um, there's still a few tickets left. So if you do, in the unlikely event that you do listen to this while wandering around Tower Hill, you know, you can just circle back. Go to the venue, which is at something docks in Tower. I should probably know this. Dockside Vaults, I think it's called. Um, and you can probably still grab a ticket on the door. There's still a handful available as I'm as I'm recording this. Um, what's going on, guys? What's happening in the news? Should we talk about this? Uh, let's try, try and make a sort of newsy current affairs uh, edition of this, shall we? Um, a big story that's just sort of bubbled up uh, uh, on my lunch break, just as I'm, you know, pulling the mic closer to me, um, is BBC bosses deciding that Carol Vorderman must leave her radio show. Uh, this is BBC Wales, as I understand it, um, after a breach of the new guidelines. Goodness me. Uh, it says the former Countdown co-host said she was not prepared to lose her voice on social media uh, and she's hosted the Saturday morning show on Radio Wales, Wales for the last five years. Um, the, the article that I'm reading, this is on Sky News. It says Carol Vorderman has left her BBC radio show over the corporation's new social media guidelines. Uh, you may or may not be aware that these these guidelines, these changes, uh, as I understand them, were brought in in the aftermath of the Gary Lineker debacle. Whoa! Do you remember all of that? When Lineker spoke out against the government and he said uh, that they were using uh, language not dissimilar to that used in Germany in the 1930s. Accurately suggested that, I, I, would, I would like to add. Um, you know, it's always important to draw the distinction. He's not saying you people are Nazis. <clears throat> He's saying that the language you're using, the sort of rhetoric that you're using is not dissimilar, it's not identical, but it's not dissimilar to the language that was used in the run-up to really awful things. So just think about where you're headed with this, was his point. And he's right. And he was right at that point. And, amusingly, uh, you know, this, this erupted, as you will recall, in a big tabloid furor. Because so much of the right-wing press were like, who is, who is this joker? You know, he's on the BBC, he's supposed to be a, a sports presenter, and here he is opining over politics and asylum policy and and the rest of it. Ah, how dare he? I'm sure it's not lost on you. I'm sure that we've beaten this horse to death when we say that it is amazing, if not hilarious, that it's the usual free speech advocates uh, 
were the usual suspects from the free speech uh, brigade who seemed to have the biggest issue with him speaking his mind. Um, partly because it gave them an opportunity to bash the lefties, as it were, and partly because it gave them the opportunity to bash the BBC, whom they will always ideologically hate, whatever they do. So in the aftermath of the Lineker debacle, uh, a new social media policy was drawn up. And the idea was that whether you are a contractor, you know, a freelancer, or if you're a BBC permanent staff member, you will have to respect the BBC's commitment to remain not biased. They've got to be impartial. They can't be drawn, you know, to sort of opining one way or the other, pro-left or pro-right, which even like in of, of itself, you know, a lot of us have pointed out the fact that Andrew Neil was free to work at the BBC for years, despite being editor of the right wing Spectator magazine. That didn't seem to bother them. Uh, Jeremy Paxman was another one who was, you know, widely reported or perceived to be very pro-conservative for many, many years before he left the BBC and then outed himself and went, yes, yes, yes I'm a, I'm a, a card-carrying, you know, true blue one-nation Tory. I mean, there's no mystery to that. Um, who else is there? Um, I'm trying to think who, who's the other. Oh, Laura Koonsberg. You know, you don't have to go too deep into YouTube archives to find footage of Laura Koonsberg sitting on a bench having a nice cosy chat with Boris Johnson or Laura Koonsberg reporting on Boris Johnson's leadership campaign and looking at him with the sort of adulation that Marty McFly's girlfriend looked at him with in the, you know, overly emotive Back to the Future scenes. You know, it seemed quite reasonable to me to observe that Laura Koonsberg fucking loved Boris Johnson. Even after he was ejected from power, when he was going through like the, the committee hearings about Partygate, somebody referred to him as a liar or that he had told lies and there she was defending him. This is after he'd been booted out of office. He, like, you could make the case that when he was in power, maybe there was a vested interest there that she continues to nurture this relationship so that she could continue to get a, a good source in number 10, she could get scoops and stories. You scratch my back, I'll scratch you. That sort of arrangement. But even after he was kicked out of number 10, she was still there on the BBC defending him. Well, that's quite the charge, she said. It's not a charge. It is a factually accurate observation of the former prime minister's inability to tell the truth. An inability to tell the truth that we might add right now was there for all to see this week when it turned out that uh, just the latest uh, couple of days of revelations from the COVID inquiry, that when those reports of Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister, saying the words that he would rather see the bodies pile high than invoke another lockdown, you know, let the bodies pile high, it was reported that he said. He flatly denied having said that. His representatives, his PR guys, his spin doctors denied it, denied it, denied it, that he had ever said such a callous and insensitive thing. Oh, he would never do that. And then lo and behold, <laughs> once again, this week, 
it turns out that he did say that. You know, his private personal secretary, one of the most senior civil servants, is there on record giving evidence to this inquiry saying, yeah, he did say that. <laughs> so, I mean, what's going to happen next time? Like, Laura Koonsberg goes, well, that's quite the charge. Like, really? <laughs> really, Laura? Come on. So, where was I? Back to this uh, Vorderman being uh, sunsetted with the BBC business. Um, I mean, the whole thing is kind of ridiculous. The, the, these sort of guidelines and these breaches, they only ever really seem to trouble or come knocking on the door of presenters who appear to possess left-leaning sensibilities, don't they? You know, Emily Maitlis did her monologue, which was, again, factually accurate. Nobody has ever been able to pull her up or explain to her what was inaccurate about that monologue on Newsnight about Dominic Cummings. And yet it was she who was pulled off air or ostensibly pulled off air um, and educated or re-educated on what impartiality means and how she can't let her own personal feelings cloud her judgment or her journalistic ability. Emily Maitlis suffered that. Um, who else is there? Uh, James O'Brien was on Newsnight and presumably was encouraged to exercise due impartiality. He's gone on record a couple of times saying, like, I, you know, I didn't want to be curtailed. I didn't want to have to kowtow what I'm saying. Like, and fair play to him, you know? If he feels the need to speak about the government of the day with utter contempt for them... I think, fine, you've made the right decision. And here's the wild thing, right? In the case of Emily Maitlis, John Sopel, Lewis Goodall, uh, James O'Brien, all of these people who make up what I would refer to as a BBC brain drain, you know, all of these people who were, like the BBC attempted to rein them in. They attempted to smoothen out the edges, encouraged them to just be, just be a good, just be a good girl, Emily. Just, just say, say X, Y, and Z, but don't, don't say these other bits. No, no, these bits are a little bit too harsh for our government overlords. All of these people, James O'Brien, Emily Maitlis, Sopel, Lewis Goodall, all of them have gone on to be more successful since they left the BBC. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, it's quite interesting to me, but then I'm a fucking media and news junkie. But do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? That each of them, the BBC have tried to rein them in, smoothen out the edges, force them to be more compliant and flattering to the government of the day. And in each instance, they've resigned, they've moved on, and they've gone on to become more successful after they've left the BBC in media or in formats or vehicles that allow them to just speak their mind. I think probably Maitlis, Lewis Goodall, John Sobel, I think they're the most stark example. Like Newsnight is a beast. It really, like to, to watch Newsnight, it is obviously a very well put together show incredibly researched 
the presenters on there are not, not, not just sort of like picked out of obscurity. They're credible, amazing journalists who possess the presentation and journalistic integrity to give you a story in a way that makes sense to you, that is engaging and holds the government to account. Fair play to Newsnight. Oh, oh, we're a big fan. However, I think it's sort of undeniable that Emily Maitlis, John Sopel and Lewis Goodall are more famous, if that's not too crass a word, but like more successful, more prominent. Now that they run their own thing <laughs> in the shape of the News Agents podcast, like what does it say about the ability of the BBC and the regard that it's held in after it's tried to force its presenters and journalists to behave a certain way or to report in a certain way. What does it say about the BBC that a podcast produced by Maitlis, Sopel and Goodall for a rival for global media has shot right to the top of the UK podcast charts and has been there consistently, I think, since it launched. It's like been number one or number two or number three, like in the politics charts in the UK for over a year. For a year, like as soon as they left the BBC, they were threatened, tried to curtail them, tried to kowtow them. Please smoothen out the edges. Please just say, no, -uh -uh, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do our own thing. And as soon as they do, boom, more successful than ever. Like it's on some Star Wars shit. Isn't it? It's like, try and strike me down and I will come back more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And I wonder what will happen now with Vorderman in this regard. You know, I sort of know loosely, I know people who know Carol Vorderman. And much sort of in the same way as I often speak about Supertansky, right? Like, I, I come on here and I do stuff and I, t I talk about the government and I'm very satirical and piss-takey and a bit beery and you know all, all the rest of it um to some extent I use this I use politics as a sort of comedy vehicle to take the piss and have a laugh right but people like Supertansky and people like Carol Vorderman they walk the walk man like they actually actually truly care about everything that they're talking about it's so earnest and so coming from the right place and it makes me feel guilty sometimes because I'm like, I'm just looking for like the, the best joke and twist and exposure of hypocrisy that I can do in order to serve as a conduit to get this laugh. You know, like I, I care genuinely about like a lot of things about proportional representation, tactical voting. I want to see greater investment in public services, but I am nothing on like a super Tansky or like a Carol Vorderman. And I wonder... What is the immediate future going to hold for Carol Vorderman now that she is freed up to say exactly what she likes? You know? Like, I always think it's a shame when, um, uh, when prominent journalists get kind of, I don't want to say cancelled because that sounds, you know, just shit and sort of alt-right. But when you get somebody like a Chris Cuomo on CNN, who is a battle-worn anchor, you know, and he speaks earnestly and he knows his stuff and he seems to care about... And then he gets booted out of CNN because he did a sort of dodgy favour for his brother who happened to be the mayor of New York at that time. And it's like, it's sad because the guy's obviously a talent and I miss him being on CNN. I thought his presidential election coverage was second to none. 
and he threw in a couple of hip-hop references. Like, I miss you, Chris. Um, but I always think it's a great shame when somebody like that is sort of unseated, for want of a better word, when they are kicked out of their vehicle. Um, and, uh, and then they didn't bother to invest the time in their own thing on the side. Do you know what I mean? Like, if Chris Cuomo had started his own podcast like three years before he left CNN... There wouldn't be, we wouldn't even be having a conversation about, like, where is he now? Like, he's on some weird, obscure cable news thing. Like, tune in on Thursdays to uh, News Pro. <laughs> it's your new budget news channel. And it's, it's probably not even that budget. I'm sure it's amazing. I'm not, you know, I'm not casting shade at Chris Cuomo. I'm just saying, I personally, <clears throat> I think it's a shame when people are, like, thrown out of their big CNN show. And then they're, you know, they're forced to run around looking for some sort of backfill role that's nowhere near as prominent or good or professional. I'm like, why didn't you start your own podcast thing? You fucking idiot, Chris. And to some extent, I guess, like, so what, Mate Listen, Sopal and Good, like, they, they sort of did it the other way. Like, so they left the BBC and then they started their own thing with, with Global. Um, and uh, I don't know, I guess what I'm saying in a really roundabout way is like, I would love to see Carol Vorderman uh, start her own podcast free of the chains of a new BBC social media policy, um, unreined in, just free to, you know, to talk, to hold the government to get like how powerful has she become as a sort of centre left, left leaning voice? In fact, you know what? I'll, I'll posit the idea right now on here. I think Carol Vorderman should start a podcast with Supertansky. What do you think about that? You heard it here first, guys. I think those two, two witty, strong, influential women, Supertansky on, you know, Twitter, TikTok, threads or whatever, Carol Vorderman in sort of mainstream traditional media, the two of them are funny and they're deadly in terms of holding the power to account. So... Why would that not work? That would be an incredible medium for the two of them to explore. Plus, you'd have the like the new world of social media with Tan and uh, Carol's sort of more. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a polite way to say it. Carol's more seasoned uh, sensibilities and experience uh, within the wider world and media. Um, I know. I think it. I think it'd be a really. Uh, that'd be an interesting project. I would. I would subscribe. Would you guys subscribe if you're listening to this? Let me know. Um, what's another story that we can talk about quickly? What else is on the news, guys? What's on your mind, Grapes? Um, there's a big story sort of bubbling. Well, it's not really a big... Like, the big story is, obviously, you know, Israel and uh, and Gaza. Um, uh, but the one of the offshoots, the side effect stories of that conflict is the disjoint, the disconnect between our Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, who is effectively, you know, the boss of the police, of immigration and asylum, um, law and order, to put it simply. There's a disconnect between her and the chief of the Metropolitan Police. And this is not the first time this has happened. You could cast your mind back, I think it was about three or four months ago, when Suella Braverman said something along the lines of, 
uh, I would expect or I would I'm empowering police to ramp up, stop and search. That was a big one. And then there was an interview with this Met Commissioner guy or chief, whatever he is. And they were asking, they were like, so is that her telling you, <clears throat> excuse me, telling you how to police? Is that her ordering you to ramp up, stop and search? And this guy was like, um, I don't. I don't really know what she's trying to do, but uh, it's not an order. And I certainly wouldn't take it as one. Like he like basically, you know, not he's sort of in a roundabout way. He basically told her to put, like, get back in your box. What the fuck are you doing? You don't tell us how to police. You give us targets and then we decide what is effective police strategy. We implement that strategy and then hold us to account in terms of like whether we've met the goal or whatever. But, you know. To a greater or lesser extent, just leave us the fuck alone to do what it is that you're telling us to do, i.e. arrest more burglars or focus on uh, organised crime or arrest the illegal migrants or whatever the obsession is this week. Suella, just ask us, tell us what you want to actually see goal wise and then let's get on and do it. Don't tell us how to do it, you know. So that was his sort of takeaway from that. That was about th three months ago, something thereabouts. Uh, he says, uh, it's not an order, and I certainly wouldn't take it as one. Now, once again, this week, and I think this is the third time now. Again, this week, like with the uh, Gaza, like free Palestine protests, loads of Palestine flags, people saying, you know, down with Israel, um, probably very uncouth variations thereof. You know, I'm sure there are protesters with poor conduct shouting out horrible things saying pro-jihad and murder the jews and all the, i'm sure that that is happening however you know you can arrest people for saying murderous things trying to incite violence or, or whatever you can arrest people for that already right that is a crime you can't stop protests you know <laughs> that is a different thing if people walk past with a flag saying free palestine free palestine that is not the same as saying that you get like just wipe israel off the face of the earth it's just completely different things and describing the entire march as a hate march by anti-semites is just disingenuous and weird frankly it suggests that you don't understand what this march is or even what protest is or it suggests that you do understand it, but you're disingenuously pretending that you don't so that you can bring along the express readers or whatever else with you. Either way, not a great look for a home secretary. So then this guy, this Met Police uh, chief, he comes up and he says, uh, look, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to like I can't I can't stop them from protesting. <laughs> it's not my job. You know, unfortunately, it's not against the law to protest. You might have tried it, but it's not like it's still not against the law. So I don't know what you're expecting me to do. But uh, this is just it's just how it is. <laughs> so he's like, I'm not going to do anything. She is then like, I'm going to keep a close eye on you guys. Then there's like government ministers on the morning news round saying we would encourage the Met Police Commissioner Chief Matey. I don't know what his fucking title is. We would encourage him to keep that decision under review. <laughs> like, like now they're telling him how to do his policing. And so this disjoint, this disconnect keeps on coming up, doesn't it? Like, uh, I mean, like I was thinking the other day, like how weird it is 
that the Tories are supposedly the party of law and order, right? I mean, we all laugh, we all scoff at that all the time. It's well-worn comedic territory, fertile ground. Mocking the fact that they're the party of law and order because they not only break the law themselves, you know, be it international law <laughs> or, or even just, you know, a cheeky little speeding fine if your name's Suella Braverman or a COVID party if you're one of the many of the cabinet who attended a wine and cheese shindig soiree, little garden bring your own booze thing. Or indeed, if you're somebody who helped out to illegally prorogue Parliament. Um, or maybe you're one of the guys who have been arrested on suspicion of rape. Uh, I was thinking the other day, anyway, like how, how weird it is. But like, even if you disregard all of that, right, the party of law and order that is the Conservative Party. So they'd have you believe. The party of law and order can never quite seem to bring themselves to take responsibility for, like, the law-breaking that goes on in society. Even when they claim to be the party of law and, or law and order, and even when they are the government charged with actually improving things with regards to making things safer for society. Do you know what I mean? They can never quite bring themselves to take some responsibility and fix the law breaking, you know, like they have a real problem with it. Whether it's the explosion of organised crime that we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, extortion, blackmail or, you know, people trafficking or gang crime in inner city areas. Like all of that will be laid, like the blame for it will be laid at somebody like Sadiq Khan's store, won't it? If it's London or like Andy Burnham's, if it's Manchester, uh, you know, if, you, if you've got a, a, an upsetting hate march happening somewhere in your neighbourhood. Well, that's the mayor's fault, apparently. It's, it's completely outside of his jurisdiction, whether or not to grant protest licensing and all the rest of it. Nothing to do with him. Who has it got to do with? Probably the Home Office. <laughs> If you've got a, a hate march happening near you, that is the mayor's fault somehow. I mean, what is he playing at? Sadiq. This is what happens when you have Sadiq Khan in charge. They tweet angrily from behind their anime profile picture. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have this problem if you had a Susan Hall in City Hall to scare them away. <laughs> you, can, you can interpret that last sentence entirely as you wish. But they never take responsibility for it, do they? They never actually use the power and responsibility that they've been given as the governing party of the day. And it's not just those aspects of law and order either. You know, you could pick anything. Pick absolutely any area of the criminal underworld, law, justice, like small boats and traffickers. It's, it, what, what is it then? It's lefty lawyers, isn't it? Who have sabotaged the Home Secretary. Oh, she's a poor thing. What a poor, delicate little petal Suella is to be outmaneuvered by those bloody lefty lawyers at every turn. 
antisocial behavior maybe that skyrocketed oh no it's not it's not the home office that's to blame for that it's not the home secretary who oversees and directs the police to behave a certain way it's not that it's none of that it's the nos canisters guys antisocial behavior has skyrocketed ergo ban the nos canisters that's it are, are you sure it's not that people are homeless you know and they're relying on alcohol and spice to get them through a cold night and they're out of their mind fighting over who gets to sleep under a shop window. No, 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 no. It's definitely not that. Steph is definitely the nitrous oxide. That, that's that's why we're banning it, because it's, it's hugely antisocial and it's causing it's causing real problems, real problems that I haven't definitely made up in my. Are, are you sure? Are you sure laughing gas would make people angry and antisocial? Yeah, 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 no, no, definitely. It's 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 very, it's very dangerous stuff. No, 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 shut shut the fuck up about it. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you be like, I mean, like that? That sounds ridiculous, Minister. That that sounds you you sound ridiculous right now. Are you are you laughing at me? Why are you laughing? How, how do I know that you're not high as a kite on NOS right now? Oh, officer, officer, over, over here right now. Arrest this man for laughing at me. The filthy, drugged out, NOS addicted pover. Arrest this man. Like, I think this is why they all get so obsessed over, like, culture war stuff. Because it's such an easy way to drag the conversation, like, away from their myriad failures in terms of policy, in terms of oversight, in terms of the things that they're targeted against. Like, I think I said this in an episode a week ago or a couple of weeks ago about, like, how the Home Secretary, if you actually look at what she's supposed to prevent, at what she's supposed to be addressing, like the dangers of AI, for example, the dangers of cybercrime and organised crime, and, like, all of these things that should be priority one and what is she going on about what does she spend her time witlessly babbling on about she talks about freedom of speech has to be prioritized over this it's like daily express telegraph nonsense what else is she going small boat crossing what is the likelihood that a small boat arriving with like 35 refugees on it what is the likelihood that is going to impact your life in a real way absolutely none you're never going to meet them they're probably not going to move down your street their kids won't go to your kid's school and even if they do will you ever hear anything from them will you ever like you're not going to interact with like i mean i hope that you do interact with them you know pro multiculturalism and all of that but in any real negligible not negligible in any like real terms like detrimental effect how is that small boat making that crossing and those people claiming asylum going to impact your life in any real way it's just fucking not but yet they obsess over this you've got the prime minister of the united kingdom up there behind a podium with stop the boats that's the slogan that's the priority that's the messaging that you want to put out is that really p1 in the upcoming manifesto like it's one of his five pledges wasn't i gonna halve inflation i'm gonna stop the boats i'm gonna clear the backlog with the nhs and i can't remember what the other two were um 
But how is that such a big problem versus some of the other like hugely urgent issues that should be just dominating the news and therefore dominating the agenda of the governing party? It's mad. But yeah, I mean, I suppose if look, if you had the choice out of focusing your attention on how poorly you had run your cybercrime division, your people trafficking, you're addressing tax avoidance and corruption. If you focused all the attention on that, you'd be out of a job. Quick, sharp, right? So if you don't do that and instead you focus your attention over here on flags and protests and quote unquote hate marches and all that shit, then then you can coast through to maybe another month. If you don't fuck it up with some, you know, white people have nothing to feel guilty about or some sort of speeding fine debacle or whatever the latest fucking Suella Braverman embarrassment story is. Anyway, let's try and do one more story before I run off. So here is a story that has sprung up. And the, the reason that it sort of sprung up to me or caught my eye is that the guy who's pictured in the picture for the article is a former guest of the show. Uh, it's a guy called Harry Scoffin and uh, his mum, Anna Scoffin. And I'll, I'll just go straight into the article rather than sort of give you a, a recap. But basically, he's a sort of property-related uh, journalist. Um, but the headline for this piece, it's in the I. Uh, it's written by Claudia Tanner. Um, but the headline for it is, I'm a cash cow for a billionaire, says leaseholder paying £33,000 a year in service charges. Uh, these figures are shocking. One leaseholder told the eye, I feel like I'm living under a cartel. So a little bit of um, context for you first on this. Uh, if you buy, you, you probably know this stuff, but if you if you don't, uh, if you buy a flat in the UK, you could buy it. You're probably going to buy it on a lease, right? That means that whoever owns the ground underneath the flat that the block of flats was built on, built on. They own the freehold is what it's called, which is just like it's like the land. They just fucking own that. Right. And then you build a block of flats on it and then you divvy up all of the flats and you sell them for like 300 grand each. And each flat will have a lease on it like it's yours for 90 years. So even though you've paid like 300 grand for this fucking thing, you only own it for 90 years. You're effectively paying a rent, a very, very expensive rent. And then as the lease works, like whittles down to like the last, you know, you've only got 30 years left on it. Oh, now it's down to 25. Oh, no, now it's down to 19. You have to renew that lease with the freeholder. You have to say, I love my flat. I'd like to renew it. <laughs> I've just paid 300 grand for it. How much is it going to cost for me to renew my lease? Um, and a lot of people are very upset about this, partly because it's, you know, it, it's instability, right? You want to buy a flat. And then you want to just own it. Um, but also because in the UK over the last few years, we've moved into this sort of aggressive, weird, hyper-capitalist, very exploitative era where the person who owns the freehold has started lumping on extra charges. So now what you've got is like you pay 300 grand for your flat. Maybe you bought that on a mortgage. You had to save up the money for the deposit first. You dump that on, you borrow some money from the bank. You've got your 70-year lease left or whatever. It's whittling its way down. You're going to have to renew that. But then also, how do you save up the money to renew it 
when even like every month you're having to just spaff out you're just hemorrhaging money on service charges on ground rent on this fee on that fee you know it's like you're paying five, seven hundred pounds a month on your mortgage. Then there's a service charge of an extra 200 quid a month. Then there's the ground rent for this thing and that thing. Before you know it, like all of your money's going out on just servicing you living in this fucking flat. And a lot of people like Harry Scoffin, I've just fucking had enough of it. You know, it's just fundamentally unfair. Where is this money going? You know? Like, it's kind of understandable if it's a block of flats that has, like, you know, let's say it's 120 flats in it. There's a gym on the first floor. There's a swimming pool. There's a concierge. There's a laundry service you could opt into if you like. There's a courtyard. It's all gated off. You can kind of understand how a well-maintained modern apartment complex with all of the trimmings, that might attract some service charges and ground rent i think i'm right in saying like the ground rent would cover like the groundskeeping you know they mow the lawn out the front they make sure all the weeds don't go blah 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 blah. right you could kind of make a case for that however these figures are so astronomical they're like ex an extra hundreds of pounds like every month that you have to throw into it so it's like what are you actually getting for this money what percentage of this quote-unquote service charge is actually going towards having a maintenance guy and, you know, having safety inspectors and changing all of the smoke alarms and, you know, what percentage of that money? Because it's a lot of fucking money. If it's like 120 flats and every single one of them is paying £200 a month, you don't have to be a mathematician to work out that is some serious fucking wedge going straight into the freeholder's pocket every month and it's probably not going to cost him all of that to hire a groundskeeper and a fire safety guy. And so I'm not saying it's definitely a scam. But it doesn't sound like it's not a scam either, <laughs> does it? It sounds like it's a nice way of making a fat ton of money. And I know this, right, because when Harry Scoffin was on the show. He was saying that one of the big problems with this is that the property developers that build these things, they build them. There's a, a catalog of service charge departments in there. And then all of those service charge apartments become a portfolio of assets. Like it becomes a financial instrument that the property developer sell on <laughs> to like a hedge fund or like a group of investors and they just go, oh, oh yeah, I could do with uh, some free money every month. I'm absolutely in the market for some, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, passive income, right? It's where you use your £50,000, right? You buy into this portfolio of service charges. I want to buy £50,000 worth of service charge slaves. And then every month they'll have to pay £200 and £200 and £200 and, blah, 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 blah. and then all of this money comes back to me and I don't have to do a thing for it. You know, and he was saying it becomes this asset, this financial instrument that's then sold onto this group of investors who then make their money. But then they get loans out based on that asset class and then they sell it on to somebody else at a profit who then hike up the rates even further. And it becomes so deep and dark and murky. It's so difficult to trace it back 
to whoever actually owns the asset that people's hope of negotiating better terms or holding people to account just becomes a thing of fantasy. And so anyway, just to bring it back to like that's that is the very, very long drawn out uh, context. So bring it back to this uh, this uh, article from the eye. Uh, I'm a cash cow for a billionaire, says leaseholder paying thirty three thousand pounds a year in services. Uh, it says tenants living in a long term leaseholder uh, agreement have expressed concern that reforms outlined in the King's speech. Whoa, the King's speech, guys, at the state opening of Parliament will not go far enough to help them. Yeah, no shit. I don't need to tell you guys, dear listeners, uh, that the way that these uh, the, the legislative agenda is uh, constructed, negotiated, written down, and then handed to King Charles to just parrot with absolutely no say in what he's saying, the way that they arrive at the wording for these policies that they want to turn into bills and therefore turn them into law, the way that they arrive at those fi the final wording is by various, you know, policy discussions and uh, secret breakfast meetings with donors, many of whom within the Conservative Party are property developers and private landlords and investors. And they water down the legislation. To be fair to him, to his credit, Michael Gove has sort of taken this relatively seriously. But at every single juncture, this sort of policy continues to get watered down. And we saw it two weeks ago. We saw it a couple of weeks ago with the landlord legislation, right? We saw it a few weeks before that with the heat pumps thing. Abandoning the net zero commitment, like a big part of that was property developers were going to be forced to install more environmentally friendly, but significantly more expensive heat pumps. That all got watered down. I don't need to tell you, you guys this, that this is how this stuff happens. They construct some policy. It sounds like a good idea. Everyone's been lobbying for it for years. And then it goes through the rigmarole of the Conservative Party donor and policy rehashing machine and then what actually comes out in the wash is this shit uh, it says if you buy a property leasehold you only own the right to live in it for a set number of years the landowner remains as the freeholder and they can impose restrictions and charges and the property will revert back to the landowner or the freeholder at the end of the term. Uh, during his speech at the state opening of Parliament on Tuesday, King Charles reasserted the government's commitment to make it cheaper and easier for homeowners to buy the leasehold of a property and end punitive service charges. However, some leaseholders have argued that the reforms will not go far enough. No, it won't. Uh, Anna Scoffin, Harry's mother, has told the eye she's been embroiled in a years-long battle over her flat's service charges. Right, now we're going to get to the nightmare story aren't we? It says the retired bank clerk is paying an eye-watering £33,000 a year. And for what, guys? What does she actually get for that? She owns her flat. She's bought... She's on the leasehold. Presumably she's got it for like 70 years or 100 years or whatever. But even though she owns it, every month she effectively has to pay rent. Uh, she's paying a 33 grand a year thing for her three bed apartment in East London, where she lives with her two daughters. She says there's no cap on it. Will it rise to 40 grand, 
50 grand? Will they expect me to eventually pay 100 grand? These figures are shocking, she says. They're obscene. There's no justification for them whatsoever. I feel like I'm living under a cartel. I am a cash cow for a billionaire. This is what I mean. They build these flats or they buy the freehold. They wrap these service charges around them and ground rents, and then they resell the agreement as part of a portfolio of them as an asset to billionaires who just get that passive income back. The article continues. It says many homeowners facing are, are facing uh, excessive costs and they've been unable to obtain a new mortgage or sell their property as a result. So they're trapped. And as things currently stand, steep rises in charges. Miss Scoffin says hers have gone up 82 percent from 18 grand in 2015. Christ, 18 grand. Only what? what is that? Eight years ago. Uh, to 30 grand, almost doubled. Uh, it says if a homeowner fails to pay service charges, the owner of the land uh, on which the property is on, they can take them to court and they could potentially take the property off you. Like, can you believe that shit? So if they hike the, the ground rent and the service charges to such an extent that you can't afford it, and there's no cap on it, remember? So if they suddenly go, yeah, we're going to increase the service charges by 500%. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a second. I can't take that. And then they're like, well, I'll see you in the court then. If you can't pay it, if you don't pay it, like after 12 weeks or whatever the legislation is, I'm taking you to court. And because you'll be technically in debt by like 500%, like whatever it is. In her case, what is that? 30 grand a year? So 30, 60, 90, 120. Like if it starts to eclipse the value of the flat, the home, the landowner, the freeholder could actually take your fucking flat off you. Like, how outrageous is that? She says, despite the high charges, her building is in a state of disrepair as well. It's a no frills block with no swimming pool, no gym, no garden. But there's holes in the ceiling and walls and infestations of beetles and carpet moths. She also claims that she was without hot water for 16 days earlier this year, that pipes regularly leak and cause water damage to communal areas and that the lifts frequently break down. She says, we've had to buy a special hoover to suck up the leaking water ourselves. And some residents haven't had window cleaners come for three years now. There's pictures after pictures after pictures of the water damage, of holes in the ceiling. Like, imagine that. If this was your life, you'd bought this flat, finally you got on the ladder, and then you just get saddled with service charges. So you're gradually going into debt worse and worse. And to rub salt in the wound, the thing that you're paying for, the thing that you're supposed to be putting money towards, i.e. the service charges, the maintenance, the ground rent, keeping the facilities and services up to a livable standard, hopefully an above livable standard, because you're paying such a fucking premium rate. Even after all of that, the whole thing is crumbling. Christ. Harry, if you're listening to this, I feel for you, man. Um, and honestly, I don't know where this is headed. Where do you guys think this is headed, dear listeners? I mean, this feels to me like completely unsustainable. It's possible they might put a cap on service charges, although it doesn't look like there's any conservative appetite to implement that at this, at this stage. It's possible that uh, like through this legislation that they're talking about in the King's speech, that they will 
put it into Parliament for debate. Uh, and they'll they'll offer people the chance like to make it easier to buy the freehold, you know, and they will outlaw leasehold within houses because that was a big thing. They started building houses with leaseholds because the asset was so lucrative. They were like, well, yeah, I mean, we could um, we could make, you know, 400 grand a pop on these houses if we build them uh, or we could make 400 grand a pop on the houses. But then also every house has a lease and a service charge agreement. It's worth 200 pounds a month. And we could bundle all of those up and then sell them off. We'd make a fucking killing, you know? That was a big thing. So it sounds like they might uh, outlaw that or roll them off or gradually sunset them and encourage property developers and investors to explore other avenues. You might see some modest change, but it doesn't sound like the changes that are needed are actually going to be implemented right now. Maybe things will change. I mean, this is probably one of the few things um, that Labour could actually affect change on. Like, I always talk about how they're going to be powerless to uh, improve public services. They're going to be powerless to throw, like, five billion at nurses and seven billion at teachers and improve the schools because the GDP to debt ratio is just so unutterably fucked. Um, but with things like this, making legislation fairer, they can actually do something about that. So maybe that's a positive note to leave this one on. Hopefully we'll see something um, a little bit more a bit more positive from Labour uh, within the regulatory space. Guys, that's it uh, for this one. I will catch up with you next week on Tuesday or Wednesday for the solo show. Um, next Friday night, I'll have a guest in um, where I'll be enjoying a beer with them. Can't wait for that. This this abandoning weekday drinking thing is really like, like, is this how boring life actually is? You know? Like, sobriety is really actually quite boring. Um... Anyway, look, I was leaving it on, a, on an upbeat note and now I'm leaving it on a downbeat one. Uh, that's it from me. Until next time, take care of yourselves. Keep it strictly hashtag Bimfluencer and strictly hashtag Booge. I'm out this motherfucker.